What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I'm your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode. And this week, I'm bringing a guest on to uh, interview. And this guest comes all the way from California in the US. Now, Alan Alan Siebenaller is his name. And Alan has been a, a real estate investor and an agent for over 20 years. So he's got some great insights. And what he's also got some insights into is investing outside of your local territory. Now, this is something that I often question whether it's worth the hassle. And that is some of the insight that we get into today. Yes, you're going to find good bargains in some of these locations. But if you don't have local knowledge, that can be costly. And also, you have to wonder, is the lack of no local knowledge worth the amount, uh, like the discount you get for the deal, is it worth the hassle that could come about? Alan has some interesting stories that he's going to tell us today. So I think you're going to find this one interesting. No matter where you're listening in from, there are some great insights, particularly around mindset and uh, self-limiting beliefs. So without further ado, my uh, conversation with Alan Siebenaller. Alan Siebenaller, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Alan, it's great to have you on. And it's not often we get to talk to somebody who is all the way over in California, sunny California, I'm assuming. Um, I see the surfboard behind you there. So you're obviously a surfer. And uh, we might get into some stories about that. But for the people who are listening in, we have quite an international audience all the way, you know, to Australia and uh, Singapore and stuff. And then obviously I'm in here in Ireland and we've got people listening in the UK, but you're based in the US. So can you just give us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, absolutely. I am a 23 year old real estate investor and real estate agent. Uh, I've been living here in California for longer than that. I grew up actually in the Midwest, in St. Louis, Missouri, mostly. So right smack dab in the middle of the country. But I got to come out here to California to go to university. And once I moved to the coast, I just, you know, stayed. <laughs> so I, I've been along the coast here, basically between Malibu. I went to Pepperdine in Malibu. And then now I'm in Santa Barbara, which is about 90 minutes north of Malibu in Los Angeles, right on the coast. And yeah, it's home. It's a beautiful spot. Yeah, I have uh, relatives living in, uh, I think it's Manhattan Beach. So it's yeah. uh, down the road a bit. Um, and so, Alan, when you say you're 23, so you're a 23 year veteran, you would say. Uh, <laughs> you're yes. not 23 years old. <laughs> the, Correct. Uh, and tell us, I mean, if you can take us back to the early days. I always like to kind of give a bit of context because we've got a lot of different people listening in and, you know, describe young Alan coming out of school and, you know, what got you interested in the idea of investing in property? Yeah, I got into property investing basically to take financial control in my life or have some financial control, you could say, because when I was growing up, my dad worked his way up in a factory. So he started 18 years old driving the forklift. And then his whole life, he worked his way up in this factory, 
job. And then when he was middle-aged, um, the company that owned the factory is a national company, got bought out by another company. And I was a senior in high school trying to figure out college and a lot of big life decisions. And when his company got bought out, they laid off all the managers. And so he lost his job. It was also a recession then. And so he did not have a college degree either. So he you know, devoted his life to this company and then got laid off when the company got bought out. And then we just had no idea, like, you know, it was, it was kind of a mess and I was trying to figure out college. And I remember just how difficult that was. And I was starting to learn about business as I was starting to move towards college. I was learning about investing. I got into learning about real estate because I had a friend whose dad did really well investing and he was also a broker. And so I did an internship with him oh, and I was really hungry to just learn how to have my own business and investments, I guess. And then that led to me eventually stumbling into the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which I read. And that changed a lot of my thinking in terms of investing. And from there, I'm just like, I'm all in. I got my real estate license and I just started working in commercial real estate because I wanted to work for basically investors. My clients were all investors. They were buying commercial properties and I was just learning a ton. Starting in commercial real estate, I did not make a lot of money because I was really low on the totem pole. But the the knowledge that I gained was worth way more than what they could have paid me. So I started that way and eventually branched off on my own as an agent and then as an investor. Interesting. Yeah, very pivotal when you're when you're when a family member loses his job like that and you're kind of like you're you're witnessing it as a as a child, but, uh, you know, an, a grown up child, I guess. And you're kind of like saying, whoa, you know, that's not going to be happening to me, hopefully. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but it's tough. Yeah. I've, I've seen a lot of people that I've spoken to have had similar kind of influences that have really pushed them into that. And tell me this, um, like in terms of getting your real estate license in the U S what's, what's involved in that? Is that difficult to get, or is it an easy process? Uh, I wouldn't call it easy, but I also wouldn't call it difficult. <laughs> so, you know, what's interesting is it's divided by state. So depends what state you are in. Some states are just, I would say, super easy. And other states are a bit more difficult. California, where I am, seems to make everything difficult. So everything's more complicated in California, more litigious, more, you know. And so uh, it it takes a bit, but it's you know, it's just a process of going through the classes and then eventually taking an exam. I'd say it takes six months maximum if you're really going for it. And uh, the complicated part then is actually, you know, doing the business, yeah. getting up and going. Your first few years can be hard, but uh, getting the license varies very much by state. And tell me that, yeah, and you mentioned I, when I was reading your backstory, you've done business in like nine states or something like that. And yeah. do you need to have a license in each one of each of those states to do that? Great question. No, you don't. So, as an investor, yeah. as an agent, you do. Or, or I, like if I, as an agent, if I'm helping someone sell a property in another state, then I can partner with an agent that does have a license in that state. Right. But as an investor, I can do business in any state. I can buy properties as the investor, obviously, and I can sell them even as the investor. But I'll, 
when it's an out-of-state property, I'll use an agent anyways. Uh, yeah. But yeah. Local knowledge and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And tell me, Alan, would you describe yourself today? I mean, are your principal activities investment today or are you still working as an agent? I'm doing both. I'm absolutely doing both. I'm working as an investor and and I I teach and share kind of like we're doing today on that side of things. I work as an agent as well. Um, but I am more and more, I've always been more and more steering into the investing side and the teaching side. And that's, you know, that's what we get to have fun with today. Yeah. But um, yeah, I that's really where my heart is. I, I originally got my license as an agent to learn the investing side, right? So you could see yeah. it was always my intent to be on that side as much as possible. And to be honest, the more you're on the investing side of things, the more control you have over so yeah. much, over your schedule, over your life, you know, et cetera. When you're strictly working as a real estate agent, you are somewhat of a slave to your client's needs, right? Yeah. And so as you get more and more financial stability on the investing side, you can pick and choose what you're going to do as an agent, right? Yeah. But if you have no stability, no financial um, wherewithal on the investing side, and your sole source of income is working as an agent, then you're pretty much taking whatever comes your way. And sometimes that can be a little rough and, uh, you know, but that's, that's how you get started. And then as you advance, you can pick and choose your clients and what you're going to work on and what you're not. And tell me, uh, Alan, in terms of, I mean, that, that transition from agent to investor, like describe that time when I presume you got a big enough commission as an agent that you were able to make your first step into, into investing. Yeah. Kind of. It helps. I mean, for my personal story, my first transaction, which we can dig into, was a condo in in Los Angeles in Culver City. And at the time, my wife and I had started with property management. So we were getting like a a reduced rent apartment in a nice apartment building in Santa Monica. uh, And we were helping manage the building. We were the resident managers. So we lived in the building. They gave us a kickback on the rent, and then we just helped lease units. We helped supervise some of the maintenance. It was a great learning experience for us. We worked directly for the investors that owned the building, and they were a really nice couple. And so it was a great situation. Well, then we started saving some of that money that that we were um, saving on rent. We started sacking it aside, and then we started looking for our first place. And that first place, I did have... Uh, actually, I didn't have my license yet. I was working okay. on getting it. And the agent that represented us was horrible. Um, they were so bad. They were like pressuring us into buying things we didn't want to buy. And they would get emotional. And they were just a wreck. <laughs> and I remember thinking, gosh, if they can survive as a real estate agent, I'm I'm sure I, I could. Yeah. Um, but that was our, our first purchase. And I got approved originally. This was back when you could do zero down loans. I got approved for a zero down loan, but then last minute, like three days before closing, the bank switched it on me and said, no, you need to come up with 5% down. And I panicked because I didn't have a lot of money. And then I, you know, like my grandma chipped in a few thousand dollars and I found (laughs) a few thousand that I was going to save from my tax savings on buying the place. I was going to get a tax benefit. So I pulled it together. That was my first place. But then on our second place, which was a few years later, I did have my real estate license and that did help because I represented myself on buying it 
and I got paid a commission to, you know, to buy it. So that, that did you, help you a mean bit. By, so the person who was selling it paid you a commission? Correct. Oh, wow. Even though nice. I was the buyer and the agent representing myself. Okay. That's an interesting yeah. uh, twist on it. Yeah, I like it. So it did help a bit. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of the uh, those first few deals, like were they just simply, you know, move in? It's a place to, to buy and rent. Um, did you have to fix it up? Did you have to do any of that kind of work? Yeah, we had to fix them. Everything almost that we've ever bought, we've had to... We've had to do some. So you're value about, it's all about adding value. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah. And that's what we we're looking for. So the first place, the condo had a really good layout to it. What I, what I call bones. It had good bones. It had two patios. So it had a patio off the bedroom and a patio off the living room. And the complex it was in was nice. It was also top floor. So it had a good view and lots of natural light. But on the inside of it, it was like 1970s, right? Like, right, you right. know, just horrible ceilings and and lights and everything was bad the flooring was horrible so that was all just cosmetic that we could fix up but the the layout to it was just right that once it was fixed out it just had a really wonderful feel to it and then we fixed it up while we lived in it and um lived in it for like a year then we moved out of it and rented it out right wow okay nice and then over time I, i'm curious when you say about the timing um the the zero percent down did you get did you get burned in 2008 i did not get burned in 2008 so lucky man <laughs> well i i i did on one deal I'll, I'll explain that one so fortunately in 2006 around there i actually started feeling uncomfortable financially with my real estate investments, they had gone up in value significantly and I was not getting cash flow from them. I was not, right. they were, they were, they, the equity, which is typical in California, the equity had boomed, but the, the rent and the expenses were somewhat of a break even. Maybe I was making a little bit of money nice. and I started feeling uncomfortable about that. And so I, and, and I felt like potentially something was going to go wrong, but I thought it was for me. You know, I had like that, just that sixth sense going. And so I sold um, the, that condo I was telling you about, sold it for double what I bought it for. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and, and I did a 1031 exchange into a 12 unit in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So a 1031 exchange for those that aren't familiar meaning means that I sold it, put the gain all went into an escrow account at an accommodator. And then it went into the next property, which means I did not touch the money. So I did not have to pay tax on the gain. It nice. went from one property to the next. And I moved from one unit to 12. And so that dramatically helped my cash flow. Uh, so and also I, your 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 risk as being completely de-risked because you now have one twelfth exactly risk exposure. Yeah. Exactly. And so then as the market did eventually, you know, go down 2008, and nine, it didn't matter because I had a lot of good rental income coming in on that property. So right. the value of the property did not matter to me at all because I wasn't selling. But yeah. what did matter is how much rent was coming in and the rent did not go down at all uh, during the recession. And so that was a, a stroke of genius. And I did that again in 2007 with uh, the four unit, I bought a four unit also in Culver City, and I sold that and 1031 exchanged into a 48 unit 
in Texas. 48. Those, wow. That's yeah, a big it, yeah. So those were both brilliant moves. But the mistake was I also bought land in Texas. Fortunately, it was just a little piece of land, but I bought it in the area I was buying it in. These land values were skyrocketing. They were just going up and up and up and up. Well, what goes down the fastest yeah. during a recession is land. And yeah, I learned that on. lesson hard. You know, I don't, I bought it for like a hundred thousand, but it went down during the recession to probably 35 or 40. Right. And so I just had to suffer through it and hold on to that piece of land. But the multifamily, the rents did not change during the recession. Actually in Texas, they went up because they struck some oil down there and I had oil workers coming down and we started furnishing some of the units for them and renting furnished units. But yeah, that was, you know, both a mistake I made and then some strokes of genius as well that happened to just Fortuitous, at least. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't see the, yeah. the the crash coming because it was personal to you. You just thought this was prudent, smart move. Um, I wish I could say the same. I <laughs> I went through a massive roller coaster ride in 2008. The um, I'd love to ask you about the you mentioned when we were before we went on air that you've had some experiences with the. Uh, violent squatters and gangs and things like that. Tell us, tell us that story. I'm interested to hear more. Yeah, absolutely. So during the recession, now that we've kind of led to that part of the story, I was buying properties from banks and I was also traveling and teaching these boot camps, these three-day boot camps on buying homes, flipping homes, wholesaling homes, all of that. And so I was making a lot of friends in different states that we're traveling to. Some of my friends were teaching with me. And what we did is we ended up picking up properties from banks in different states that were just incredible deals. And some of them that I started picking up were in Chicago and South Chicago. And South Chicago can change very much block by block. You can have a few blocks where it's just really rough, really bad. And then you can have some really, really nice blocks and I was focusing on buying in the in the nicer blocks. And we were renovating these properties and renting them out mostly to affordable housing, to Section 8. So the government was paying the rent. And there was one property, it was a two unit. I, I mean, the numbers were so good on it. I bought it for like $20,000. I put about, let's say 50,000 into it. It needed a lot of work. And we rented both units out for 1,050 a month to um, two Section 8 tenants, the government was paying 100% of the rent. Wow. Um, so it was just basically guaranteed rent. And it was a great deal. And then what happened is uh, a gang member moved into one of the properties next door. And I, I think he just got out of jail. And unfortunately, when you get out of jail, you can't get a job. And so a lot of times the only thing they can turn to is back to the gang for, for money and all of that. And so started the gang started hanging out at the property next door, and then they moved on to our front porch. And one of the tenants called and said, hey, you know, we've got a gang hanging out on our front porch. They're selling drugs. They're carrying guns. We're, we're scared to death. And if you can't deal with this, we're going to move out. And I thought, oh, no. Like if they move out, then you know, the gang can basically move into the property and then the government will protect them as squatters. Yeah. And that was the last thing I wanted was that to happen. So I called the police and the police said, 
There's not much we can do. When we drive to your property, they have lookouts that will warn them that we're coming and they hide everything by the time we get there. Do you have a vacant unit we could set up surveillance in? And I said, I don't have a vacant unit and I don't want to have a vacant unit. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to and, avoid that. <laughs> yeah. So we didn't know what to do. And I started scratching my head. And then I started researching on the internet about security guards. And it's amazing what you, the the sort of security forces you can hire on the internet. But I found a guy that uh, was Chicago PD and he's for hire when he's off duty. He's an off duty police officer when he checks out and you can hire him. Wow. And he told, yeah, it's just awesome. And he told me that he would come to the property, works four hour shifts, 50 bucks an hour, something like that. And he would show up and he would show up with a cop car. And he also said, if anyone messed with him, the entire police force will back him up because even though he's off duty, he's still a police officer, right? Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking, so you're telling me I can, basically I'm hiring the entire oh. Chicago police force <laughs> for 50 bucks an hour. I'm like, yeah. you're hired. This is amazing. <laughs> and so I had him go there to the property prime party hours. I said, show up Thursday night, just show up at like 9 PM, stay till like one, show up Friday night, show up Saturday night. And he did the first night he was there. He steps out of the car and one of the kids started talking trash to him and they interact. The kid gets taken in um, first night. Then second night he's there. There happened to be some sort of shooting happened on the street. Two more people got arrested. Third night, everyone's gone. Fourth night, everyone's gone. Problem solved. It took four nights and the, they never came back. Basically, you can't sell drugs when there's a cop hanging out on your street, right? So it yeah. shut down their business um, and uh, the problem was solved. My tenants were happy. They They ended up staying. They ended up, you know not vacating the property. And that was just a huge lesson learned that you can actually hire off-duty police officers. And I've used that um, now two times where I've hired an off-duty police officer to help me deal with a situation. I would never recommend to go into any of those type of situations on your own. You no know, way. you have some of these landlords, they'll go in, they'll be like, oh, I'll deal with this, right? Don't do it. You can, you can literally risk your life yeah, um, yeah. Well, especially I, yeah. Chicago. I mean, that that's like I've heard so many gun deaths in Chicago in, in the space of just 12 months and stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not there anymore. But um, any any of those environments where I would say to a, a property owner where you're dealing with a tenant that you just don't know, you can literally show up with either don't show up at all and have a security person deal with it. Um, of course, you have to follow the laws. But um, there was another situation where I, anytime I showed up the property, I came with the off-duty police officer. He came with me. And you can solve those situations really quick. One thing that you, legally you are entitled to is to do inspections. Yeah. And so I'm not entitled. If, if, if a squatter does get into the unit, I'm not entitled to, I'm not allowed to just kick them out, right? I have to go through the proper procedures of yeah. eviction or whatever, but I am allowed to do inspections. And so we started doing routine inspections and we started going through the unit and checking for plumbing leaks, checking the smoke detector, checking all kinds of stuff. And I had the officer with me and it just made them miserable really quick. And then we were able to negotiate. This is another situation I'm talking about now, but yeah. we we're able to negotiate cash for keys, 
which I just said to them, Hey guys, you know, we're, you're kind of making us miserable. We're kind of making you miserable. I've got, you know, $400 that I'm going to give to a judge this week to evict you guys. It's just, I have to do it. It's part of my job, but I'd rather give that $400 to you. If you're out by Friday, what do you think? And they took it. They said, we'll be out by Friday. And I, every time I went to that property, I had the off-duty police officer with me. Um, and so just gives you that sense of comfort that, uh, you know, exactly problem solved and lesson learned for me. Yeah. And tell me this, when you were buying in Chicago, you, you were using a local agent. Yes, we were. And do, did those guys know that there was, you know, potential gang issues and stuff like that in that area? Yeah. Uh, so I had a local agent and I had a property management company. And to be honest, you know, I think, let me just cut to the, what the lesson learned in this situation. Uh, the, the big lesson learned is for long distance investing. So I was in California. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Long distance. Yeah. For long distance investing to never do it uh, where I'm investing in a lower income situation. Um, there might be exceptions to that rule, but generally when I'm investing long distance, I want to be in an A location with a tenants um, yeah. or, or just don't even invest long distance because the drama that you'll experience uh, in a lower income neighborhood. Uh, and sometimes it goes really well. I've had a lot of situations where I did affordable housing long distance and it went really well, but then I've had other situations where literally, you know, the house got shot up by, yeah. you know, a drive by shooting and they, you know, and it was on the news. So Long, long time doing this lesson learned is now if I go long distance, it's going to be in an A location and maybe I get a property that I can still add value to, but I want to have just a demographic of tenants that are more stable, that have jobs, that don't have gang activity, (laughs) you know, just, just that type of stuff. Yeah. Checklist. No gangs, please. Yeah. Yeah. I was just thinking about in terms of the distance, because I have got um, coaching clients and things that they do look at properties that are cheaper in other areas. Mm-hmm. And the issue is just when it comes to the management kind of headaches that can take place when you have to, I mean, Chicago from California is quite a distance. I mean, it's several hours of a flight, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so I mean, what were the criteria that made you want to jump into a deal? Because it would it would obviously have to be a significant profit maker in order to make to warrant that that hassle factor. Yeah. You get sucked in by the numbers, but yeah. the numbers are often a facade. So you think about it. I bought that two unit for twenty something thousand dollars. I put it looks, 50 so it looks like a it. great bargain. Yeah. I put 50 into it. So I'm into it for 70, let's just say 80 with holding costs. And I rent each unit for a thousand fifty and it's government guaranteed rent. That is so tempting to build a portfolio like that. Yeah. But the drama that we went through because that's about uh, a 30% yield, isn't it? Or something. Yeah. Yeah. The yield is incredible. But then the drama that you go through, or if that tenant moves out and then the unit gets sacked or squatters move in or the gang uh, that sort of stuff immediately wipes out all that gain you thought you were going to get. And it adds a ton of drama and stress, which is even more important than the money um, to be going through that type of stress long distance. Um, so yeah. that 
eventually just made it not worth it. That's where it's like, okay, you know what? I If I'm going to go distance with my investments, then I'm going to go with a location. And now I'm to the point where I will only go with, you know, large multifamily because I want a professional management company managing the entire property. Yeah. Um, so, um, but I do, I, I still have a, one single family home that, um, you know, that's just been, I've, I've had the same tenant in it for like a decade and it's been easy to manage. Um, but generally speaking, you got to be careful with the distance and you want to stick in, you know, as good of a location as possible. Don't get sucked in the house that I mentioned that had the drive-by shooting. I bought that house for $5,000 Okay, and I got, <laughs> I got sucked in by the numbers. My property manager said, Hey, I'll manage it for you. This house is 5,000. So I bought it for five. I think we put 15 into it. So we're in it for 20 and sure enough, it rented right away for 675 still really good numbers but then nine months later i got a call and and my property manager said hey your your property was on the news last night because they <laughs> they drove by and shot it up and the tenant ran ran and it's vacant now and so you lose whatever gain you thought you were going to get that year yeah, I so i just i just sold it i got my money back you know i didn't lose anything but it's just not worth it and tell me, Alan, do you invest in commercial property? I mean, you have a commercial background given your your agency, but do you actually buy commercial? You know, I've toyed with the idea. I mean, I bought large multifamily, but I have not bought any office. I mean, I'm glad I don't have office right now. Yeah. <laughs> but I've not bought any office or retail or industrial. Um, but I, I'm really intrigued by it and I would like to, at some point, maybe add that to my portfolio, but what I've liked about multifamily is, you know, like I said earlier, I just sailed right through the recession with multifamily yeah. because people need a place to live. And if you're not in the high end luxury, but you're in somewhat of a middle ground, you know, um, then you generally stay full during a recession because, people need a place to live and so yeah. no it absolutely i i'd agree with you there i mean i i the way i've built my portfolio over the past is to kind of mix the two because i like the income certainty from residential yeah but then the if you want to have outsized returns commercial is the way to go yeah i've done deals where i i quadrupled my money in two years in a commercial unit and yep. I, and I, and I bought it for 600,000. So we weren't talking small money and, and yep. this thing, you could never quadruple the value of a residential property. Right. Um, and the, the work to achieve that was just to build three walls and split the unit into multiple smaller units and then totally. just lease it up and then sell it off as an investment and huge increases in value. Yes. And, and but I've been then thinking I, about doing exactly that. It, well, that's it. It's the arbitrage where you, re, you know, you buy something that's priced as a large unit, split it mm -hmm. into multiple units. And mm -hmm. then you can kind of, I did that twice, three times, did really, really well. And then I bought one. And it's funny, you were saying earlier that you fall in love with the numbers and that's, you get intoxicated by the numbers. Like I, I saw another property, very similar, a uh, commercial property in a rough part of town. And I, I, I saw it, it was 500,000 to buy. And I had a tenant ready to move into it. 
And the moment they signed, the, the moment the ink was dry in the lease, that property was worth 1.2 million. And uh, so I was thinking, I'm going to double my money here very quickly. And so I, I tried to get them to sign a, a, a lease agreement in advance of me buying it, but there was delays and stuff. So I had to close the deal and buy the property. And then I was waiting for them to sign. And long story short, they pulled out of the deal and I was left with an empty unit that I paid 500,000 for. And I was like, okay, I'll try and find another tenant. And I didn't realize there was guys selling drugs on the corner right outside. And there was mm. every time a person pulled up to, you know, to, to have a look at the unit, their car would get broken into. And it oh. was just became a nightmare. 12 years later, I managed to exit that deal for a hundred thousand, 400,000 oh. loss and 12 years of holding costs. Like it was so, you know, you really do have to, you know, sort of thread carefully with commercial. But when it goes right, it goes beautifully, you know? Yeah. Very yeah, that's so true. And, but, and going back to that model, I love that model, especially right now. I think there's a trend towards people having small commercial space, especially if it's like a flex type space with a roll up door. Yeah, that stuff's beautiful. It's in high demand all across the country. Uh, you do want to be in a location where there isn't high crime, because generally the people that are going to rent those types of spaces are going to be your contractors, which there's tons of, right? It's your yeah. plumbers, your electricians, wood floor installers, even like uh, you're seeing now um, CrossFit gyms and yoga gyms and all. They're going into those type of spaces um, where it's a small space that a small business owner can afford and it's got some sort of, you know, roll up door or high ceilings and that type of feel. Um, it, and there's it's just secure. A, yeah. As yeah, long as they're totally secure. secure. Mm -hmm. Because it, contractors, the big concern is all of their equipment getting lifted. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and that's it. Yeah. And Alan, I remember reading in your backstory, you also had uh, an issue with hurricane damage or something like that. Tell us yes. about that. That sounds like a, an exotic oh. deal. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you love dragging me through all my past pain, don't you? Yeah, yeah, it's all about the resilience. You see, it's like if we all talk about our successes, nobody wants to hear it. They want to hear so the true. stories, you know? It's so true. I love it. I love learning from other people's challenges. And so, um, yeah, Hurricane Harvey, that was 2017. I'll never forget that week. Basically, I had moved towards selling my 48 unit in Texas. I put it on the market I needed the money because I bought a 74 unit in Tulsa, Oklahoma that I was renovating um, and it was pretty run down. And so we needed to move the cash. So I put it on the market and I got three offers and I was reviewing those offers. And then like literally Thursday, I was got the offers. I was re reviewing them on Friday and Hurricane Harvey's approaching the property <laughs> and Friday night, Hurricane Harvey hits the town it's in, which was Victoria, Texas. And it sits there. The hurricane sits there all weekend long for three days, just hovering around that city. My maintenance guy is calling me and he's like this tough old Texan guy. And he's just like screaming. He's like, 
He's like, you wouldn't believe it. He's like the rain. He was sending me videos of the rain <laughs> was going completely horizontal. It wow. wasn't even touching the ground because of the way the hurricane was whip whipping through the town. Right. The rain was going this way. And he's sending me videos of the rain. He's sending me videos of the street, which looked like a river and trees falling over. Wow. And I just thought, oh, no. And I get a call from my agent that he says, hey, the offers are gone. Everyone's backing out course yeah the hurricane leaves and we're just left to pick up the pieces and it's a mess i had uh part of the roof blown off four oh. of the units completely destroyed um another part of the building the entire wall got ripped off um i had trees all over the place looked like a war zone yeah and i couldn't even get to the property for weeks because the roads were closed going in and all of this stuff yeah. and so we called our insurance company, right? And the insurance company did not return our call for probably like three or four weeks. I'm I'm just doing, you know, damage control. And um, so eventually they call us back. They say someone's going to come out and inspect. Well, they keep saying that, canceling it. And so then I hire what's called a public adjuster. And a public adjuster is someone that, used to work for the insurance companies, but now they're for hire by private individuals to negotiate with the insurance company. Because right. I'm thinking, this is not going well, and I've never dealt with a situation this big. And that's one lesson learned is when you go into a situation that's big like that, and you feel in over your head, look for people that you can pull from, experts, mentors, whatever. But I, I basically got this public adjuster. He'd been doing it for insurance industry for 20 years. And he was negotiating on my behalf and he was going to get maybe 10% of whatever claim we got total. Right. And he was going to take all the workload off of me. And so he started working on it. He worked on it for like a month. And then he called me and said, look, these guys are playing games. They're not, they're, they're saying they're going to show up. They don't show up. They're totally overwhelmed. And, and they offered me at that point, I think $90,000, but it was about 200 and something thousand dollars in damage. Wow. And so we turned them down. We said, you're joking. And they said, no, that's our final offer. And so the, the adjuster told me that I needed an attorney. He's like, you need an attorney. This is ridiculous. They're, they're totally hoping you're going to take this money and leave them alone. And he knew an attorney that all this guy did was hurricanes and insurance okay. companies. <laughs> and so I'm like, that's my guy. And so I called the attorney and of course he was incredibly busy and he said that he takes 40% wow. of what he gets from the insurance company. And I was like, whoa, 40%. I'm like, that's- You're nearly that's, at that 90,000 already, yeah. Yeah, I'm like, that's a massive commission. And he said, well, hold on, let me explain. The 90,000 you've already got, I'm not taking any of that. That You've already got that. Whatever I get you above the 90, I'm gonna take 40% of. But I am so good at this, and I've done this for so long, that I will get you what you need to get and my fee on top of it. Okay. And you won't have anything to do except sign a couple pieces of paper. And I'm Confidence. like, confident. Okay. That sounds pretty good. And then he said, who's your insurance company? And I told him and he goes, yep, I know them. I've sued them before. And I won. <laughs> and I'm like, you've got the job. Right. So sure enough, um, you know, unfortunately it took, you know, like another seven months because of the legal system, you know, it takes a while, Yeah, but yeah. Sure enough, seven months later, we won and I got every 
dollar I should have gotten. Um, it's unfortunate that it took seven months and I almost went bankrupt during wow. that seven months because I had now a crisis situation there that I was shelling out money for. And then I had the 74 unit we were rehabbing, Please. doing a yeah. ton of work on, and I was shelling out money there and it was just too much. It was too much money going out and I'm just holding on, waiting for this legal case to get settled. Wow. And um, Stressful. You know, we made it, but it wasn't easy, but a lot of lessons learned. And telling me this, Alan, that's a great segue into a question I'd like to ask you about resilience around yeah. you know, real estate. Everyone wants to get into it until something goes wrong and then they regret the day they heard the word real estate. I mean, how do you deal with those you know, I mean, almost going bankrupt. I came very close to it as well. And um, I mean, it lasted for years in my case, not seven months. I mean, it was, it was, you know, the best part of five years of, you know, being uh, in a negative net worth kind of territory and stuff. Yeah. And um, very stressful, very damaging to, you know, mar my marriage fell apart. I lost the family home. There was an awful lot of problems yeah. as a result wow. of all of that yeah. and um now I, I i consider myself to be kind of a, a strong-minded resilient person do you have any like how would you suggest is the best way to deal with that kind of stress that you're referring to <laughs> yeah grab uh, the surfboard and gosh. take to the waves <laughs> absolutely that's yeah. the first thing i was going to say is for me i hold stress on the inside so i come from a a German family, you know, all the way back to German farmers. And what we know about the Germans is they are non-emotional. <laughs> and, you know, I think I just hold inside my stress and, um, and the best way for me to deal with it is to physically move my body. Um, and so surfing has been huge. Swimming has been huge, but really anything I could go play pickleball or, you know, tennis, whatever, anything where I'm just physically exertion. pushing myself yeah, to the point exertion. of exhaustion. I've found that then at, when I get on the other side of that exhaustion, I feel like that stress has left my body and that's been huge. I think also, you know, there's a spiritual component for it to me as well. So like, in, you know, I, I ultimately get to a point where I have to rest and realize that God's in control um, even when it seems like he's not. And, you know, that's part of the, where I can actually let go of things because there's only so much I can do. I'm only human. Right. And yeah, to a certain yeah. point, to a certain point, I can do what I can do. And then I have to let go and I have to go and I have to be with my family. I have to be a dad. I have to be a husband. Um, and yeah. if I carry all that stuff with me in those environments, it's going to start causing toxicity in those environments. Right. Um, so just I, those are two, I think, very, very practical things that have been helpful for me. And then also realizing, you know, there's like this old whatever Chinese proverb or something, but that says crisis creates opportunity. Um, but I do like that mindset that where something majorly goes wrong and if you look at it and it, maybe even detach yourself emotionally from it. And think, okay, through this, getting through this may just open up an incredible opportunity in another avenue or in this avenue that I'm in. But yeah. I've found that to be true many times, that when something majorly goes wrong, it just opens up something else 
that you weren't even predicting could happen. Those are a few Very things true. that have helped me. Those are great. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on in terms of physical exertion. That's the same mm. for me. I just do, you know, triathlon events or whatever, some sort yeah. of exertion, and that helps. Um, in terms of, you know, you're, you're, you've been successful in property, you in real estate. I mean, can you tell us what would be one of those habits or behaviors that you have that has, in your opinion, been the, the, the biggest driver of success? Yeah. Wow. I don't know what, what the, what the greatest, you know, one is, but I'll give you one really, really good one that I've been working my way through, especially in this past season, which is limiting beliefs. Mm -hmm. So realizing that I have limiting beliefs in, in my thought process, some of which people have told me and I've, and I've grasped onto it and I'll give you some examples, others, which I've just made up on my own. Cause I just don't think that it's possible. Um, and those things are traveling around in my subconscious and, um, and they're actually holding me back from doing things. Um, so a limiting belief would be to someone listening to this and thinking, wow, it's incredible what these guys have done. I could never do that. Or, um, I, I could never do that because, and there's a reason like, because I have bad credit or because I have, you know, who, who knows? I mean, maybe they even have a criminal record or whatever, whatever situation yeah. or whatever, thing that they're believing that they think that because because of this I could never do fill in the blank and I think we all have those and it's good to kind of go through the garden and weed those out and realize that that's not true that it's not true that even if I have bad credit I can't buy a property even if it, the the shift is to say okay you know what I have bad credit I just went through health issues I just went through divorce whatever you just went through and because of that, um, it, maybe I can't buy a property the traditional way through a bank, but how could I buy a property? So you actually shift it and you think, yeah. okay, there, there's still, I know there's still ways to do this because there's people out there doing it without banks. So start thinking um, around how could I, rather than this is why I can't and start looking for the answers. And it's amazing because your brain, your subconscious will actually start working on that problem solving yeah. when you're sleeping. Like literally our brains are kind of wired to solve problems. And, um, and, and then you can study, you can get mentors, you can do all kinds of stuff to figure out, well, how could I, even though I have this problem or this challenge, how could I still do it? And that's been a big um, journey for me. And it's a constant journey, I think, for all of us. I think you're right. I think that's a, that's a really valuable insight because I've seen it as well. I mean, a lot of people I am dealing with, you know, clients that would come in to, to for some coaching or something like that. And they will be saying, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I come from a background where, you know, I have no formal education or I didn't go to college or something. And they think that that is a, re, a, a blockade or something. And you kind of say, but hold on a sec. Once you open their eyes and say, but this chap over here, he's exactly the same as you, you know, is a, is a tradesperson just like you. And he's doing really, really well. Um, and this is what he does. And next minute, their eyes are open. It's like a shroud has been lifted and they, oh. and they suddenly realize, wow, okay, yeah. So yeah, it's very, very good uh, insight there, Alan. And uh, I, we're coming towards the end of our time. I just wanted to, there's a couple of questions I like to ask. First of all, the economy has gone through a bit of a, a, a hit, we'll say. Um, certainly that's the perception. In certainly the office sector, I can tell you, as an office landlord, it's it's pretty tough out there. But a lot of people feeling the pain with interest rates having shot up and things like that. Um, 
how are you dealing with that? Do you see that as an opportunity or do you see that as a, a test or a challenge? It's both, isn't it? Right. Yeah. yeah. The, the Federal Reserve, their main weapon against inflation is to raise interest rates. And they're just wielding that weapon. And typically what the Federal Reserve does is when they do something, they overextend it longer than is necessary till they experience other problems. So for example, when they drop the interest rates so incredibly low, they kind of did it for too long um, yeah. is a lot of what the opinion of economists are. And then now we're the other way, right? Now oh, they're sure. like, yeah, yeah. now they're, now they're going to raise interest rates and they're going to probably do it for a long time. But I have to say as an investor, that means there is huge opportunities in this for me. And with some of them, just some of them, there's probably some I haven't even discovered yet, but some of the main opportunities are there's less buyers to compete with. And that is massive for me because when I went to make an offer on a property in California a year and a half ago, there was 20 offers, 20. Yeah. And I, I can't compete with 20 offers, especially when 90% of them are like, people that would pay more than makes sense. Yeah. And they're all emotionally into it. As an investor, I'm out of the game when there's 20 offers. And so when there's zero offers, all of a sudden things can get very creative. I, you know, price can get creative. Terms can get creative the way it's finding, you know, yeah. all kinds of creative things could happen. Um, so uh, that's a massive opportunity right there. Um, when there's fear in the market, fear of high interest rates, fear of what's going on, Distress. As an investor, it creates opportunity. Yeah, no, for sure. And also, I, one of the things that I like to kind of tell people is it's not a resources are rarely the problem. It's a lack of resourcefulness. It's yeah. it's just not thinking around the, the problem uh, and just like looking at it as an obstacle rather than thinking yeah. about solutions. So, uh, Alan, in terms of some a question I ask all my guests you, you're an experienced guy now, 23 years in the business. What advice would you give young Alan, 18 years of age, starting out, like knowing now what you know, what advice would you give yourself looking back? Yeah. My situation is maybe a little more unique, but um, because just being in California, but I'm sure some of your listeners are also in California. So I think I would have stayed more local. I, I went to, into nine different states during the recession. I just got excited. I was, we were picking up properties so cheap from these banks. Yeah. And I think I spread myself out too much, too thin into, you know, in one state I had like one property, one little home, you know? And so I think I spread myself out too thin. If I just would have stayed in California, um, I would have also got much greater appreciation. So on the coast, when you're on the water, or you know anywhere close to the ocean, usually yeah. your cash flow is tighter, but your appreciation can be greater. Yeah. You know historically, it's almost always it's always been greater than than other locations. And so I think that if I would have just stuck with California, I would have also bought less properties because in the Midwest I was buying them for you know less than a hundred thousand. Here I buy one for you know six hundred thousand. I would have had less properties. It would have been easier to manage. I would have been in better locations. Um, so I think a lot of it has been just not being, you know, drawn in by these incredible numbers in these rough locations and rather being in better locations, maybe even higher prices, maybe on the books, it looks like I'm going to make less cash flow, but the reality is I'm going to probably do even better 
than those lower price properties. That's right. been a big lesson learned. Great, great stuff. Well, Alan, um, thank you so much for your time. How can people find uh, or learn more about you? What, what's the best way? Yeah, a great place is YouTube. Um, YouTube.com slash Al Siebes. It's my nickname. It's spelled A-L-S-I-E-B-S. Um, that's I'll a put great a link. place to find. I'll yeah, put a link perfect. in the show notes to, to bring you through. I'm on I'm on YouTube as well. So I'll I'll click in and become a subscriber of yours. Oh, tonight. awesome. Yeah, I tell a lot of stories on there. It's fun to teach and talk through stories, real estate stories. So um, yeah, thanks so much for having me. Alan, it's been a pleasure and uh, good luck with everything. And if you're ever bringing the surfboard across to this side of the world, I'd be happy to show you around a couple of surf spots. Sounds good. <laughs> Love it. Take care. Thanks. You too. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alan today. If you did, please leave a like by clicking on the uh, link below. And uh, if you have, if you could, it would be great if you could maybe leave a review and uh, the reviews really help us. So either a comment uh, down below or some sort of review, five star if you don't mind. Speak to you soon. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.